because we sent out a newsletter just recently just updating everybody. And actually, we have two really cool J-Hop t-shirts um, that were in. Actually, only one of them, I think, was in there, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Just the Justice is a Man. The other one has the Boston skyline along, like, kind of the midriff here. And it says, a city set upon a hill. Um, so it's kind of our, you know, everybody loves the Boston skyline and loves the Boston t-shirt, but it's really our prophetic declaration of what Boston was intended to be. So you'll be wearing prophecy. <laughs> um, so those two t-shirts. And then also um, Daryl's new new song is on there as a download, um, which they're working on a compilation CD. Um, the music makers in the back. <laughs> um you know, really, honestly, there's many reasons why we need a new building, but I, I definitely want church to be something that my son enjoys coming to and that there's space and room for him and all the other kids. Uh, but I find more often than not, I'm like, you know, trying to squish him into one corner because we're so confined here. <laughs> um, so really with the, the growth of finding a new space for all of us, we'll be able to expand and grow and our children will also as well. Um, but if you didn't receive the newsletter, you definitely want to, because um, it has a lot of updates on there and news of things that are taking place. So we're going to pick up today in Acts chapter 20. For those of you that don't know, we've been uh, covering the book of Acts, and we're on the last leg here. Um, we actually, after today, only have uh, seven more chapters in the book of Acts, which is crazy. <laughs> taken us a little longer than anticipated. Mm. But it's definitely worth taking the time to look at because, as we've shared consistently, it really is the model for the New Testament church and what we really want to wrestle for the reality of in our lives. So if you want to turn to Acts chapter 20, I'm actually just going to open with a word of prayer. God, we just thank you for your kindness to us, Lord, that you have given us the word. Lord, as a gift for us to study and to learn more of your likeness and your nature, Lord, to learn more of your ways and to grow into your image. God, we ask today, God, as we look into your word, God, would you open the eyes of our heart, Lord, that we might see you rightly. God, would you open the eyes of our heart, God, to even behold you. God, I ask, Lord, right now, God, would you sensitize us afresh and anew? Amen. God, I ask, Lord, that every place, God, that we very nonchalantly go over Scripture and skim over Scripture so casually, but yet that there's treasures and revelation and understanding and life to be imparted, Lord, through every page and through every word. God, we ask, Lord, even now, God, that our our spirits would even just slow down to the place to be able to sit before you and to hear the words that have been uttered through your word, God, to, to learn from you and to glean from you. God, we ask today that you would be transformed more into your image and your likeness as we even behold you through your written word. Lord, we worship you. Amen. Amen. So Acts chapter 20 um, really, where we're picking up here is this was Paul was basically going to start making his way back to Jerusalem. It was going to be his final missionary journey to Jerusalem. Um, and basically, what we're finding is in Greece and in Macedonia, as he was traveling through, basically, when Paul began his ministry, he was given the charge that he would care for the poor, that he would remember the poor. 
And so what we actually find out in it, through these passages of scripture is that he's remembering the original charge, and as he goes through Macedonia and Greece, he's actually gathering offerings to take back to him to Jerusalem. So he's actually intending to go back with a love gift. Now just keep this in context, because where we're going with chapter 20 and, and chapter 21, you really want to remember that the intent and the desire of his heart was to be a blessing to Jerusalem, and even to go back and sow financially. And really what he was actually doing as well was really exhorting them that you have salvation and you have the gift of Jesus Christ. You have the gospel being brought to you because of Jerusalem, because of what took place in Jerusalem. So let's sow back into Jerusalem. So he was really making this appeal. Um, and he was, just for those of you that don't know, Jerusalem was a very, very poor city. It, it was, they, they were a poor people among them. So he was making a plea to Macedonia and to Greece that they would sow finances. And ultimately, he was honoring the word the Lord spoken over him to remember the poor. So this is kind of the context. But basically, he's headed back to Jerusalem. That's going to be his final destination. But in route, he's going through uh, Macedonia and Greece. And basically, um, so that's the context for chapter 20. And then if you pick up, actually, in verse 7 through 12, you actually find that he visits and he's going through a place named Troas. Does everybody see that there? That he's, um, this is in verse se uh, 7 through 12. We find that he's visiting a place called Troas. And for those of you that have never heard this, uh, this story, it's actually the story of a young man. That in the city of Troas, his na uh, name was Euclid. And basically, and I'll give it to you, this is the summary of what takes place. It's actually comical. But there's a lesson for us, for, uh, for all of us in this. Now, on that first day of the week, when the disciples had come together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. So he preached till midnight, first of all. It's late into the hours. And it says, then there were many lamps in the upper room where they had gathered together. And in a window sat a certain young man. So now here's this young man, and he's sitting in a window. Now, let's just keep in mind, no matter how captivating of a preacher you are, when you start, I mean, I know I've been to some really amazing services, very powerful signs and wonders happening, all of those things. But I, I can honestly say there's been a few times I've literally gotten down on my hands and my knees and put my face in the seat like I'm in the posture of prayer and just gone flat out to sleep and just thought, you people keep rolling because it's awesome, but I just need to check out right now because I am exhausted. And I've literally gotten in the posture of prayer in long conferences. You know those conferences that you're there for three days, the speakers, it's 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night, and you're like, give me a break now. But, you know, amazing things are happening. People are getting gold fillings in their teeth. You know God's moving. There's no doubt he's moving, but you just need to check out for a moment. So that's been me a couple times, fall asleep. Only thing, I've just done the proper thing and gotten the posture on my knees in prayer. <laughs> so here's this young man. He falls asleep and he falls out the window. <laughs> no lie. He falls out the window. It says, he was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken dead. He died. <laughs> Paul's preaching. The brother falls asleep, falls from the third story and dies. But Paul went down, fell on him and embraced him and said, do not trouble yourself for his life is in him. Now, when he had come up, he had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even until daybreak. So he continued preaching until daybreak now. So now he continues preaching till daybreak. Then he departed and they brought the young man in alive 
and they were they, they were not a li- <laughs> they were not a little comforted. So basically, this is the story. Paul's preaching. The dude falls out of the window. He's dead. It says he is dead. Paul goes and he prays for him. The guy is raised from the dead. Paul gets back up and continues preaching till morning. That's crazy. I don't know number one about you. But if the guy dropped dead in the midst of one of my meetings, as much as I would be so grateful that the Lord raised him again, I'd be traumatized that a guy died. I mean, honestly, in the midst of all of it. But do you want to know something? (laughs) I actually think that there's many things to learn from this story. But first and foremost, Paul just keeps going. He doesn't stop. He doesn't, he doesn't stop for tragedy. It was a death. He could have actually stopped preaching at that point and been like, okay, we're all traumatized. That was awful and horrific. We're glad he's raised from the dead. Now I'll go your separate ways and I need to go have, I mean, you know me, my nerves would be like completely on edge. I'm such a high strength person. I'd be like, you know, I'd need like some kind of a pill to bring me down. But you know, he, <laughs> no, it's true. I, I would absolutely freak if somebody died in my midst like that. So, but it keeps going. But the other thing, too, is in our day and in our culture, when the guy was raised from the dead, that also would have caused Paul to stop preaching because he would have stopped to go report it to all the newspapers and put his face on the cover of Charisma that now he's raised someone from the dead. Really, in, in, the, in the devastation even, or even the blessing or the supernatural, Paul did not stop. He stopped for nothing. And I mean, really what it speaks to each and every single one of us is, I'm going to be honest with you, my theory in life is just keep going. Honestly, I understand that trial, circumstance, tribulation, but I guarantee if whatever you're called to do, if you're in the midst of school and it's really hard and it's really difficult, but you know the Lord's called you to be there, just keep going. If you started a business and it's difficult and there's hardship and you know God's called you to do it, regardless of what's happening, just keep going. And this is the extraordinary thing, and this is actually why I say it. Our human emotions are so frail. They really are so frail. You can wake up one day, and the circumstances of life are so overwhelming, and there's so much hardship that you just want to quit on everything. Everything is overwhelming. Everything is awful. Everything stinks. Everyone is, you know, nobody does anything right. Everybody screws everything up. You know, everything is a disaster all around you. And the crazy thing is you can wake up the very next day and none of your circumstances have changed. Not a lick of them. And you wake up out of bed singing in tongues. (laughs) Like almost like you feel angelic activity in the room. Nothing in your life has changed. It's just simply that you're in a different emotional state and you actually have a different ability to perceive what God is doing with a new day. And so that's the extraordinary thing is oftentimes we make decisions based upon our circumstance. You know, we look at circumstance And I mean, honestly, there could be multiple times in my life where I'm like, shut it down, stop it, end it, close it up, you know, all of those things in the drama of a moment. But honestly, my theory in life is, I I say just keep going. My theory really in life is I pray in tongues and I just keep going. (laughs) Just pray in tongues and keep on going. And the extraordinary thing is oftentimes... I mean, you know, I'll, I'll know what it's like, whether you're raising children, working with people, any work environment, when you're dealing with people, life is hard. It, it's not easy. There's always circumstances. There's circumstances with finances, there's circumstances with misunderstanding. There's everywhere you turn and everything that you, but the extraordinary thing is that honestly, if you start praying in tongues, for those of you that don't have your prayer language, we will pray for you after service because it's essential to living. <laughs> um, but if you just start praying in the Holy Spirit or calling on the name of Jesus, we're already teaching Abram. 
Abraham, if your heart is overwhelmed, we already teach him, no matter what happens, if you get scared, if you get frightened, if you just say, Jesus, Jesus, just say it. And so we actually hear him now. He'll, he'll be instructing other children, his older cousins. He'll go, if, I, if you get scared, all you do is say, Jesus, and he'll rescue you. <laughs> I mean, it's the understanding that you speak the name of Jesus, and he comes into the circumstance, and he changes everything. The extraordinary thing is you can start to utter the name of Jesus or pray in tongues. And the amazing thing is sometimes you might not even get the first syllable. Really. Not even the first syllable out of your mouth. It's just simply because you turned the posture of your heart that you automatically feel peace. It changes in a moment. Other times you might have to like pray it through for a good five, ten minutes. <laughs> but you come to the other side and all of a sudden for some reason everything comes into order and perspective. But if I can encourage you, I mean, we're going to cover a lot today, but if I can encourage you with nothing else, whatever the Lord has put in your heart, and I mean, even if it's not necessarily a word from the Lord, in family relationships, in marital circumstances, all of those things, if you just keep going, do all that you know to do, and throw a little shakabaka in there, <laughs> pray in tongues, <laughs> I guarantee if you just hold on in that circumstance change, Everything changes. Circumstances change, your mentality, your perspective, all of those things change. But that's actually what we see from Paul's life. The, 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 the contrary is also true. Oftentimes when things start going really well, and there's prosperity and blessing, or there's breakthrough, or there's, we actually, it, it's, sometimes we actually see in those circumstances, we end up changing our posture then as well. And it's almost as if we stop doing, I've, I actually, this is one of my favorite books. If you don't own it, I highly recommend it. It's called The Imitation of Christ uh, by Thomas Akempis. He's considered one of the older, older mystics. But he actually, he says it a lot more eloquently um, and a lot more um, in English and phrase that I could never use. But the essence of what he actually says is that many of the individual that through discipline and through posturing their heart have acquired something in the Lord, that through then through seasons of neglect and no longer giving haste to their heart, they actually lose what they took years to acquire because they've neglected the discipline of what actually brought them to that place. Another play, Leadership 101, if any of you guys have ever read Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, all of those like very fundamental leadership seminars, they all teach that successful people people do what successful people, I'm sorry, successful people do what unsuccessful people don't want to do. I mean, one's in the natural, one's in the spiritual, in the, in, in the sense of those very disciplines that get you to a place of breakthrough and revelation and understanding or just even communing with the Lord. It's when we neglect those, we actually lose the ground that we've gained. But the same is true in the very natural of if you look at somebody that has ascertained or gained something, whether it's naturally or spiritually, oftentimes it's simply that they have done something or even a discipline that other people have not wanted to do. They simply have not desired to either wake early for the discipline of it or save for years upon years. Those kind of disciplines. But actually what we find... Thomas Akempis actually speaks about that place of discipline. Of you give years and years, and it's almost as if there's a place of spiritual wealth that, that is, is stored up in even revelation and impartation, and then through years of neglect that it's lost. But really the principle, when you look at Paul's life, is whether it's in blessing or in hardship, just keep going with what you know that the Lord has called you to do and be faithful. Um, 
So we find, basically, he, he gets up and he goes the next day and he begins his journey. Um, from there, we actually find in verse 17 through verse 38, this is where Paul goes to Ephesus. And we need to pay close attention because it's actually his last address to Ephesus. Um, there's seven lessons, basically, that he teaches. Now, keep in mind, we're going through chapter 20. Basically, right here, this is a three-year missionary journey that he took to Ephesus, and it's covered in one chapter. So three years of ministry are condensed to one chapter. What's going to happen, actually, when we move into Acts chapter 21, seven days in Jerusalem are going to be articulated and conveyed through four chapters. So it's crazy, but the writer of Acts decides to literally take a three-year missionary journey and condense it into one chapter and give you the summary. And then when, when he's having his final days in Jerusalem, it actually takes four chapters to articulate it. Um, so this is the essence of what he taught and what his last message was to the church of Ephesus. Um, so if you look in verse 18, it says, And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in, in what manner I always lived amongst you. First and foremost, this is what I want you to make note of, before we learn these seven things that he taught the church, which are critical and important for us to learn as well. His very foundation is saying that when I, you know that when I came to you in Asia, in what manner I always lived among you. He's actually, before he teaches them anything, he's talking about his personal life example of how he lived. Really, this is for every single one of us. That really, beyond, before we even go into studying the word, or teaching the word, or even discipling or sharing with another person, the most powerful thing is for us to move beyond the theory of what the word of God says. Most of us can say exactly what needs to be done, how it should be done, what the word of God says pertaining, it, pertaining to it, but when it comes to the actual working out and the living of it, the power of him being able to say that this is how I lived amongst you. He's about to teach them seven things, and he's not going, these are the ideals, this is what Christianity should look like, this is what leadership should look like, this is what we should go after. He actually has the authority to say, this is how I've lived amongst you. He's able to say, follow my example. I mean, that's for every single one of us in this room, whether you're discipling a new convert that just got saved last week, that whatever principle you're looking to teach and instill in them, the power for you to be able to say, this is how I've lived. For you not just to say, this is what it says in Matthew, this is what it says in Romans, but for you to actually says, say that this is what it says, and this is how I've ordered and structured my life, and this is the testimony of it. That's the true power of us being able to share with other people. That, and honestly, if, if you're in a setting to share something, and you really aren't to a place of walking it out in entirety. The, the thing of integrity to do is say, I haven't perfected this yet myself, but this is my desire, and this is what I want to challenge us all with, that we would all go after this. But Paul had the place of authority to say, and this is how I lived amongst you. That is amazing and profound and powerful, even before you go on to the seven things that he instructed them. So the first thing that he instructed them in verse um, 18 through 19, was to strive for a servant's heart. This is the very first thing that he mentions. So basically, we're going to go through these rather quickly, but every single one of these could be an entire message. 
Maybe we'll do that. Maybe we'll do a seven-part series. Everybody can take a topic today, study it out, and we'll go through seven weeks and preach it. But um, strive for a servant's heart. Honestly, that is not something you hear very common in our culture and our society. The value of a servant's heart. That is not something that we strive for. That is not something that we place as the uttermost of character, but it's actually what he's instructing them is first and foremost. Strive for a servant's heart. And specifically in the place of humility. He uses the word, verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility. That everything we do in every circumstance we are in, that we're serving the Lord and we're doing it in a posture of humility. Uh, The next thing that he instructed in verse 20 was to preach the word at all times. Preach the word at all times. He actually says specifically, and this I love it again because all of it is personal. And he says, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you. And he says, publicly and from house to house. He's saying both publicly and privately. In the place of the public setting, that he held back nothing but he preached. But even in the private setting of house to house and in the breaking of bread, he was found preaching the word. And that's his exhortation. That's the exhortation to every single one of us. Preach the word at all times. I actually love what, uh, is it St. Francis of Assisi? That he actually says to preach the word at all times and if necessary, use words. Meaning let your life preach continually. Let your life preach. When you take the posture of a servant in any work environment or social environment, that preaches Jesus. When you take the posture of humility, when you prefer another person, I guarantee you that countless times when you're in a public place, if you choose to do something kind or even prefer another person, I always stand back and think, obviously, because I can't sit there and go, I'm doing it because I love Jesus, so I love you. I mean, you can't do that in the middle of Walmart, right? But I always stand back when somebody does a double take, you know, like when you, you know, if there's the last of something and you're like, no, really, you have it. You absolutely have it. Or somebody drops something and you offer to get it for them. You actually find it takes people back kind of like, why are you being so kind? Why are you helping me carry my groceries to my car? Why are you going out of your way to, I constantly, when I'm doing acts like that, I ask, I say, Holy Spirit, reveal Jesus. That it's the good, we we have no goodness apart from Jesus. That it's only because of Jesus. And I believe in a moment like that, when we're encountering people, and through kindness and generosity, I believe the Spirit of the Lord can move on someone's heart. I honestly believe that. I believe when someone's in line in front of you, they're short 50 cents or a dollar, and you go, here, absolutely, here, I'd love, it would be my pleasure to give that to you. I believe it speaks to them, even sometimes beyond us standing and saying, if you were to die tonight, do you know if you'd go to heaven or hell? I don't think they really care to hear that. But I think, actually, if there's something of the Spirit of the Lord that they bear witness to, of the kindness, the generosity, and the mercy of Jesus, that it can do more in a moment to convert a heart than all of the preaching of words. It's actions. Um, So this is his exhortation, is to preach the word at all times, in public and in private. Verse 21, he actually expounds further about the preaching of the gospel. And he says, testify to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. And see now, I go bound. Oh, actually, this is going to go on to our next point, so I can't. But anyway, he emphasizes repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. I actually, we don't have time today, 
But this right here could preach an entire sermon, the emphasis that he instructed repentance towards God. There's many, 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 many messages that could be preached. But Paul actually emphasizes repentance towards God. Really, I think that the message of repentance has been largely, largely lost in our generation. The understanding of the power of repentance, the understanding of a, the heart posture of repentance. I mean, ultimately, when you look at someone like the life of David in the Old Testament, the guy was screwed up. I mean, really, if you think about it, <laughs> the sin that was found in his life. But I firmly believe that all throughout scripture, some of the men that have the, had the greatest callings, they actually had the greatest screw-ups. I mean, if you look at their downfalls, but actually what you find in people like David is it was a heart of repentance. That when, when sin was found, it, he was not found resting or even making peace with it. He was found in repentance. And I believe that that is what actually brought the favor and the mercy of God that he was able to fulfill his call. Um, so he specifies here the preaching of the gospel, and it's specified as repentance towards God. In verse 23, I'm sorry, verse 22 through 23, he actually emphasizes, be prepared to suffer for Christ's sake. That is completely contrary to the gospel that we preach in our day and time that's a gospel of prosperity. That Jesus came to make you rich, he came to make you powerful, he came to make you happy. He came, all of the things that we somehow think that it's for our success and our fame, where he actually is saying, be prepared to suffer for Christ's sake. That's in verse 22 through 23. Yeah, he actually said, I, I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulation await me. He's actually letting them know that the Holy Spirit had been testifying that for him to go to Jerusalem, that chains and tribulations were awaiting him there. That is so powerful because really, if you think about it, I know in my fallen nature, the thought of being persecuted, I mean, even some things that we're praying about of possible missionary journeys and places that we feel like the Lord might lead us in years to come, I know all of them, there's actually peril involved with them. There's hardship, there's the, 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 the Christians are persecuted, the gospel is oppressed. And even as we talk and we pray with different leaders and different things, I feel that cringe inside of my heart to kind of go, so wait, so we run right into the face of persecution? Is that really what the Lord would ask? But you actually find here, Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit testified that there would be chains and persecution in those cities. And we actually find that Paul ran right into those places. Um, being prepared to suffer for Christ um, was uh, verse 22 through 23. And then verse 27. Um, it actually reads, I'm going to read it to you word for word. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. There's two things that he's actually emphasizing here. Number one is the love for truth. He's actually saying here that he did not, sh he did not shun to declare the whole counsel of God. What he's saying is, I didn't pick pieces and portions that were appealing. I mean, that's really, in, in the day and time in which we live, we pick the portions of Scripture. Yes, it may be true, and it may be a portion of the heart of God or a portion of the gospel, but it's not the entirety of the gospel. 
What we do is we pick the ones that are appealing to the intellectual mind and even really to the humanistic heart. We pick those ones and we preach them, and it's actually what we call in our culture being a seeker-friendly church, of giving something that is appealing to the mind and the heart of man so that we don't offend and that the church grows. And in our mind, we've actually thought that the Church of America is growing because we're able to fill you know, thousands of people in a room or stadiums with... But actually, what, we've, what we've, we have to realize is, according to Paul, he actually articulates this. If that's what we do, what we're doing is we're shunning portions of the counsel of God instead of preaching the whole counsel of God. So he's actually declaring that he did not shun or shy away from the preaching of the whole counsel of God. He actually goes on to the warning of savage wolves. What he's speaking of is deception, of watching that there will be deception amongst you. Um, I'm actually working on a project right now with a couple of other people, and it's a book project. And part of what's ch- like inspired it for me is, I'm, I'm going to be honest, I look at my son, and I, I'm gravely, I don't want to say concerned, because I believe that there is going to be a triumphant church pre- preaching truth, but I'm concerned with the gospel that will be presented in his generation. Number one, when you look at the cultural wars taking place, and somehow in our generation, even within the church, we define love as not speaking truth. That's really how love is being defined. That if you speak truth, that you become unloving. That if you have any kind of a standard or even hold to biblical values, you are an unloving individual. And the reason that that is completely twisted is that if you look at the authenticity of the word of God, that Jesus preached truth and his motivation was because of love. That to be truly loving, you must speak truth. But the perversion of it in our culture to silence the church has been that if you speak truth, that you do not love the sinner. That you do not love those that are bound in certain areas of sin. And it's the complete, it's, it's deception. It's actually what he calls these, these savage wolves. It's deception amongst us to silence the preaching of the gospel and to silence the clarity of truth. So the project that we're working on is basically a book project, and it's the true defining of the relationship between love and truth in our generation. And it's laying out the scriptural premise that to be truly loving, you must speak truth. And if you refuse to speak truth, it's actually out of self-preservation and a love for self rather than laying down your life for the others. That they might hear truth and have an opportunity for freedom. See, the the younger generation that we're raising, unless we have people that are articulating through the written word and through the preaching word, the clarity of the gospel, we can't just stand back and even shrink back kind of looking at teller evangelists and all of their sequel-friendly models and and scour at it and be critical of it, but there must be a voice in the midst of the arena taking the word of God and saying, no, this is what the word of God says, and this is authentic biblical Christianity. See, what we're going to find from the Apostle Paul is he had extraordinary influence, but he had influence because the world had no influence on him. And see, we've come to such a place that we kind of want to marry the world. We come under the influence of the world, of its, of its theology, of its ideology, of its priorities, of what it values, and all of those things, but then somehow we actually still want to influence the world. It's this battle, really, for influence. And really, it's the Apostle Paul, the model, when we look at this gentleman through the book of Acts, the way that he influenced the world is that the world had no hold on him. 
He had no love for it, no desire for it. It had no place in him. So he was able to come in complete fearlessness preaching truth. He was able to come with complete boldness. There was no mixture inside of him because the world had no part in him. So we find him actually here. He's warning um, about savage wolves. This is in verse um, 29. And the only reason, I mean, I hate that we have to go through this so fast, but this really does speak to the warning against deception. It's, you know, and nobody wants to kind of be the, the bearer of bad news and like the doom and gloom, be careful of deception. But honestly, through the books that are written in our generation, through the preaching of the gospel, you need to take the words that are preached, even from here, and you need to weigh it in light of the word of God. I mean, and that's why you guys probably have all heard me, if you're here week after week, there's certain passages of scripture that we don't even have time to go into, and I'll just say, just meditate on that one, because many of them actually address the very, very common theologies that are being sown into our generation. And if you actually take the word line upon line, and scripture upon scripture, it completely contradicts a a lot of the very popular ways of thinking in, in our generation. Um... So lovers of truth don't sacrifice truth for unity is actually what he was speaking. Guard against deception. And then verse 33, it says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Number one, basically what he's addressing is that the gospel is not motivated by profit. He was not seeking any profit in preaching the gospel, which is powerful. I mean, and really what the, I mean, we don't have time to go all into it, but what he's really addressing is that the gospel is not about making money. It's about saving souls and equipping the saints. And honestly, there are some people that have a gift and an anointing to make money. But what this speaks to is if that's your gift and your anointing, the preaching of the gospel is not your place of calling. Business is your place of calling. It's the place of finding, because really the preaching of the gospel, it's the, if it's in any way tainted, with the making of money, that's actually where the preaching of the gospel becomes stained and becomes perverted. If it's at all motivated with the, the ascertaining of wealth, but really for people that have, and, and there's no taking away from it, there are people that are called to possess great wealth. I mean, it's the only way for, gospels, uh, for the gospel to be printed and reproduced and go to the nations of the earth. It's, it's the need for wealth, but it's the understanding what he's addressing here is that he, he coveted no one's silver in no one's gold. He was not in a place of looking after gaining profit from the preaching of the gospel. He did it with purity of heart, and that's what he was speaking to those that he was training. Um, And then lastly, number seven, the last exhortation he gave was to uphold the weak, give to the poor, and he was encouraging them to live extravagant lifestyles of giving. So basically, these are the seven principles. I mean, every single one of them can preach, and they're things that we need to wrestle for the integrity of in every area of our lives. Um, I'm, I'm trying to see if we have, it's really late. I took a very long time on chapter 20. I was going to do 21 and, I'm sorry, I was going to do 20 and 21 today. And it's almost 5.30. <laughs> I don't think we're getting to 21. <laughs> I would lose you all, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, that's a bummer because 21 is so ridiculously good. <laughs> Okay, let me just take a sigh. <laughs> we just move faster that we're not getting to 21. I thought I was going so fast so we could get to 21. But I obviously was going extremely slow. Okay, so let's... <laughs> I'm just coming to grips with the fact that we're not getting to 21 today. <laughs> 21 is so good. 
Um, really, 20 was supposed to be like just an uh, introduction to. <laughs> Isn't that awful? <laughs> yeah, look at her. <laughs> She's like, next week. It's true, next week. We'll, we'll cover it next week. Um, but regarding what we just... I really want to make sure that even in the sharing of that, regarding the stewarding of finances, that everybody clearly understands, he is speaking to those that are called to live by the gospel. Like, that is actually what he was addressing and what he was... And I actually... I'm going to read this to you. It's from A.W. Tozer. I love, 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 love. Trying to find, there's a story in here actually, and he goes through the balance of of finance. He says after the Methodist, he's actually speaking of John Wesley. Um, are you guys all familiar with A. W. Tozer? This is the the dangers of shallow, shallow faith. It's a very good book. Um, after the Methodist Society became became established and had circled the world and were growing in number, John Wesley admitted. We are in a peculiar paradox in our Methodist societies, he said. I have noticed that as soon as a group of people meet together and form a society and subscribe to the New Testament doctrines and bring their lives into line with the truth, they immediately get honest, they get frugal, they're saving, hardworking, and upright and industrious, and the result is they have money. (laughs) This is what he writes. This is John Wesley. Then he said, as soon as they get some money, they begin to trust it. As soon as they begin to trust their money, they cease to be holy and spiritual, frugal, hardworking, honest, good, and so they backslide. And so here is the vicious cycle. Get right with God, and you become frugal, saving, honest, hardworking, and serious. That is the path to get rich. (laughs) This is what he says. When you get rich, you tend to backslide. He said, this is a vicious, 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 vicious cycle. And then he says, what are we going to do? Leave it to John Wesley. He was not going to be licked by the vicious cycle. See, this is the thing. John Wesley, he would in no way come to the place of despising wealth because wealth is necessary for the preaching of the gospel. It's needed. But what he basically was saying was, if this is the vicious cycle and you can watch it over and over again, how are we going to come to the place where wealth can be entrusted to us for the stewarding of the gospel, but we don't become ensnared by it? And he actually, it's extraordinary, he actually has a whole chapter in here about the stewarding of prosperity. But that's ultimately what Paul is speaking to, is that we come to the place where we're able to own possessions and even able to steward money, but it does not steward us or it does not own us. The place where it has no hold on us, no grip on our hearts, that it's not something that we're ensnared by, but we can easily steward it. These were his exhortations. He actually used um, in verse 35, it says, It is more blessed to, to give than to receive. And he was speaking of this posture of giving. So next week, basically, what we're going to do is we're going to move on to chapter 21. And in essence, basically, what we're going to find in chapter 21, and which is part of why I love it so much, is that he goes on to Jerusalem. And in his missionary journey to Jerusalem, he was utterly warned not to go by the counsel of many friends because they knew that there would be persecution there. And really what we begin to look at in the next chapter is the fact that this world had no hold on Paul. There was no place that he feared for his own life, but he had been so caught up in another age and an age which is to come that that's what gave him true influence and true authority in the present age. The understanding that the fruitfulness of our life And the fruitfulness of what comes from our life is directly related to our understanding of eternity 
and really understanding that this world is not our home. I know it's funny, um, I mean, all of us in this place, because we live in a culture and a society that aspires to wealth and excellence and greatness and all of those quality things, I actually have a phrase, and to be honest with you, for some reason it just sets my heart so on course. We were out on a, a lake one day on, uh, on somebody's boat and passing like an amazing house. And as we were passing it, my husband was like, oh, and for those of you, I'm sure a lot of people in this room have been to our house. Our house, I love it. I'm so grateful. It's a gift from the Lord. I think I'm going to be there maybe the rest of my life. <laughs> I have no ambition to move. But it's small. <laughs> I live in a small house. <laughs> my house is a blessing. But I noticed that when my husband, he, we were driving by a house, and he was like, can you even imagine? Like, it was just this massive, sprawling, you know, those ones on the lake with windows that just go endlessly. And, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> maybe we were with you on Canopy Lake. <laughs> we might have been looking at houses. But I looked at Daryl, and I said, this world is not my home. And it's amazing when you put things in perspective for what is literally a moment in time. What is just the blink of an eye? Here today, gone tomorrow. And ultimately what we're living for. But the crazy thing about weighing things in perspective of that is how many of you guys have actually heard, there's a quote, it's actually a famous quote. It says, sow a thought, you reap an action. Sow an action, you reap a habit. Sow a habit, you, you reap a character. And sow a character, you reap a destiny. It's the understanding that from a simple thought that we have, that ultimately that thought leads us to take some sort of an action. And you can actually watch this play out. That action actually will create a habit. That habit then will create a character, and that character will determine our destiny. From literally the seedbed of desire in our lives, our, in what we do with desire. Desire is not a bad thing. It's what we do with desire that will actually determine our destiny. And, and, and an illustration of that is exactly that. Being out on that lake, looking at a lake house, to be honest with you, that's how things actually start and determine destiny. In that moment, if a desire to acquire a home or something or a boat, whatever it may be, in that, that can act, those kind of things are what actually, if you have a desire, it's actually going to provoke you to take an action. Very easily. It's easy to acquire more money. You just take on a second job. You just work more hours. You just do... I mean, all of those things can be acquired. And really what you see is in that place of desire, I mean, in a moment, at looking at a house or something, if I, if I made that the, the affection of my heart to say, that is what I desire. In a moment, my husband could be working a second job. And in a moment, we could be banking a heck of a lot more money than we do living off of support. I mean, ultimately, that house is attainable for me. Completely attainable. It's doable. And I'm not even saying I would have to disobey the will of God for my life to get it, but it's that place of from the root of desire. That place where we simply say, you know what, for some of you, that house would be the will of God for you. And I'm going to come over and party there. <laughs> and I will celebrate that house with you. But for this chick, it ain't. <laughs> the house of prayer is what... <laughs> But it's the understanding of that place of calling. And it's the understanding of not going after the things that God has not ordained for us, but yielding desires to the Lord, of yielding those things, and that ultimately that we can have wealth and steward wealth, but wealth does not own us. And that we can steward in a way unto the glory of God and the kingdom of God. And the beauty of basically Paul laid out you know, these seven principles here. I love what he laid out next week. 
we're actually going to see how he puts his message into action. And literally, he loves not his life unto the death. He loves not his life unto the death. Paul lived the living reality of I count all things as rubbish for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. And that's really what it is, is what is the supreme desire of what we adjust our life, our priorities, our ambitions according to the desire of our heart, that really the excellency of the knowledge of Christ would be the supreme desire of our lives and the greatest ambition of our lives. Let's go ahead and close out with a word of prayer. God, we thank you for even just the beauty of of Acts chapter 20, God, and these seven principles that were instructed to the church of Ephesus. And God, we say, Lord, that we want to be like Paul, Lord, and that when we preach or testify or just even share the good news with other people, God, we want to be able to do it from the place of saying, this is what I have lived. Not that these are the principles that 